Welcome to the Grace Harbor Church Sermon Podcast. Grace Harbor Church is located in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. For more information, visit our website at ghokc.com. All right, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture um, is 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. And so again, if you aren't there yet, go there. Um, we've read that. We'll probably walk through it again a little bit. Uh, but here's why I love this passage of Scripture. I've actually preached it here before, um, and, but, but I think it's perfect for a day like today. Here's why I love it. Um, I love this passage because as a human being, and I think all of us in here, we love purpose, right? Um, one of the best-selling books in all of history is The Purpose-Driven Life. Uh, we don't necessarily necessarily endorse it from here, but we're just saying there's a reason why it's one of the best-selling books of all time, uh, because people are like, okay, I want to know my purpose. Another really hot top seller is a book by Simon Sinek called Start With Why. People want to know purpose. Uh, Purpose, why do people love purpose? Because purpose brings clarity about things. Purpose oftentimes clears things up. Um, oftentimes, if you are asked to do something, um, it's not unt- for some people. Some people are just like, yeah, just whatever you say, I'll do. Um, for, for most people, um, clarity or, or purpose is something that clarifies things. Um, it brings clarity to something. This is why we're doing it. This is why we're going after what we're going after. And so here in this text, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, Paul is writing his own why statement about what he's writing in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy, um, as we've preached through before, is a, is a book about the church. Um, it is a, a, a book from the Apostle Paul to a young Timothy on how things should go in the church. And yet Paul pauses, it seems, that Paul pauses in the middle of this book and just says, let's kind of recenter. Let me tell you why I'm writing these things. And so Paul brings this valuable depth of clarity on why he has said what he has said up to this point and why he's writing this letter. And so Paul tells us not only, Paul tells us not only why he's writing this letter, but he attaches his purpose in writing it by reminding us about the deep truths about the church. And here's that deep truth, the deepest truth. Here, Paul explicitly connects the church, and I would, I would say the local church, he explicitly connects the gospel with the church. That's the why. You wanna know why we do what we do? It's because of the gospel. Um, it's not to build a bigger church. It's not to fill in the blank. Um, and here's the deal. Sometimes, because we are sinful humanity, we can get off of this mission, But the mission explicitly here, Paul says, is it's tied directly and explicitly to the gospel. That's it. So he he ties the gospel to the church. We cannot understand the, the church apart from the gospel. If you're trying to make sense of what we're doing here apart from the gospel, it's futile. And you cannot understand the gospel apart from the church. We they're part of the same story. The gospel births the church. The church comes out of the gospel. Um, and so these two things are inseparable is what Paul is doing. And so what we're gonna learn in this text is that the church, the people, by the way, we're not talking, when you hear the church, don't think building, okay? 
Um, this is a place that we gather. By the way, this is something that we've said before. Um, the church is more than a gathering, but it is not less than a gathering. The church is the gathering. The church is not just some rogue Christian out on the streets in the world disconnected from genuine community. No, the church is the visible expression of the people of God. It is the gathering, whether we gather here, whether we gather in homes, whether we gather under a tent or in a pavilion or in the jungles, whatever that looks like, it is the people of God coming together on visible display. In fact, Mark Dever calls the church the most visible part of Christian theology. That the church is the most visible part of Christian theology, that it is vitally connected with every other part of Christian theology. And so here's what we're gonna do this morning. We're just gonna read through these verses. We're gonna, we're gonna try to understand what Paul's saying, and we're gonna fly through this as quickly as we can. And so Paul lists three metaphors for the church in verse 15. Those three metaphors or those three baseline things that we understand about the church is this, that the church is the household of God, it is the church of the living God, and it is a pillar and buttress of the truth. And so firstly, what Paul says in verse 15, he says, if I delay that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, there is a fundamental biblical truth about the church, and it's this, we're a family. And I know that's kind of weird. I know it's kind of like, especially to, in today's culture, like I, I was listening to something last week that like, hey, if you walk into a place and they say we're family, like run far away from that place. We're not gonna run far away from that because that's what the scriptures say. The scriptures describe what we are as the family of God. Um, and so there's a fundamental truth about being the family of God that is a biblical truth about the church. And so this reminds us, if we it, this reminds us, this household of God metaphor, it reminds us that the church is the place where God is the father and we are his children. So it's like, who's the dad around here? God is. God's the, God is our father. God is the one in whom we, we, we submit ourselves to and that we are children who are loved by a gracious father. It also reminds us, by the way, who is the head of the church? Who's the lead pastor here? Jesus is. Christ is the head of the church. Christ is the head of his church. And he is the one who gets to proclaim what the truth that the church proclaims is. It's not up to us. It's not up to us to decide what truth is. It's not up to us to look at our experience and say, this is what's truth. No, we weigh everything, even our own experiences against the sufficient word of God. That's what we understand. So the church is not a the church is the household of God, but it's not a building. It's not a club. The church is not an event. It is a people who are called to reflect the care and the character of God. That's what the church is. Um, it is the church who contains the message that, it, that will be both proclaimed and lived out in the world. Now, here's the, here's the thing about the church. Um, because it is a household, Let's just get real here for a second. Because the church is the household of God, and this is not contradictory in any way to the scriptures, but because it, it is the household of God, sometimes there are dysfunctional people within the household, isn't there? Sometimes we got people that are, and, and by the way, if you're thinking about the person next to you, think about this person, not well, I mean, me, yeah, but you. We are a group of dysfunctional people. That's why Paul would say, bear with one another. 
bear the burdens because we have a lot of baggage, don't we? And so we have maybe a dysfunctional household, but guess what? This is fundamental. We do not have a dysfunctional father. God is perfect. God is holy. And we are to submit ourselves to him. I've, I've shared this, this a lot of times, and we're not going to read the whole quote, but I'm summing up what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said about our dream or our vision about community. And I want you to really hear this. I want you to really evaluate maybe even some of the things that you've thought about the church. But this is what Bonhoeffer would encourage us to do. He would exhort us as the church. He would say to completely ditch your dream or your vision of what community should look like. He said, God hates it. And in, in, in Bonhoeffer's book, we have it um, on uh, life together. He says, God hates visionary dreaming. <laughs> he hates the thing that you bring in saying, this is the standard by which we should do all things. That's anything less than the word of God, obviously. But this is what I need. This is what I need people to do for me. This is what I expect from these people. Bonhoeffer would say, God hates it. It's detestable to God. Get rid of it. Abandon it. What Bonhoeffer says is that when we love our dream of community or our vision of the church, he says, guess what? It gets crushed by the reality that the church is messy. It gets, it gets crushed by that. So when we bring in our, our ideas of what a perfect church should look like, that it's very soon gonna get crushed under the reality that, man, we're just a bunch of broken people. We're a bunch of messy people trying as hard as we can to love one another and to love God, not for our salvation, but for obedience. And then Bonhoeffer goes on to say that when we do this, when we bring this in, is that what it results in is we become an accuser of our brothers and sisters. You guys feel that? Like you, you bring your vision or your dream of community in, you realize, okay, that's not what's gonna happen. And then what starts happening is you become an accuser of your brothers and sisters, those whom God has called you to love. You begin to accuse them saying, they just don't get it. Or they're just not fill in the blank. They just don't, or they just fill in the blank. That we become an accuser of our brothers and sisters. And why Bonhoeffer is challenging us in this way is because that inevitably leads to this. You not only become an accuser of your brothers and sisters, ultimately you become an accuser of God. You become an accuser of God himself. And so we must remember that we are a group of imperfect people made holy and righteous by the blood of Jesus. And that's the only way that we're cleansed. That's the only way that we're righteous. And we serve a perfect God, a perfect God who has called us to serve imperfect people. So the second thing that we see Paul say is that the church is not only the household of God, but as the church of the living God. So the church may be rightfully understood as the dwelling place of God. Hey, there's something that we often pray and say around here um, that you'll catch and it may not seem significant. Can I just tell you something? Um, maybe, there's some, maybe there's some certain like nuances to this. I'm, I don't wanna, I don't wanna to misconstrue what I'm about to say we don't invite the presence of God into our gathering. What Paul's saying here is that the church is the, the dwelling place of God. So Holy Spirit, you're welcome. Come, we invite you here. Hey, if we would shift our minds a little bit, 
to what the Bible says about the Spirit of God, we would realize that God is the one inviting us. You realize that? We don't invite the presence of God as if, God, today you're not welcome. We got some business to take care of. (laughs) We'll get back to the Spirit next week. It would be really good for us to realize that the only reason why we are the people that we are, the only reason why we have salvation the way we have salvation is because God has welcomed us. Now, is it important for us to frame our minds and to realize that God is in our presence? Yes. But we must realize that God's spirit is already in the room waiting. It's already in the room waiting. We come not because we're good, we come because he's good. And we acknowledge the presence of God, we submit ourselves to the presence of God, but we are not the initiators of the presence of God. So that's what Paul says, that it is the church of the living God. It's his church, it's not our church. So where in the Old Testament, God dwelled within a tabernacle or a temple, God now dwells within the hearts of his people, the church. 2 Corinthians 6 says, For we are the temple of the living God. Is God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Who's the one taking the initiative there? Thanks, Chris. God. I will walk among my people, and they will walk among me because I walk among them. They will be my people because I will make them my people. Ephesians 2.22 says, In him... You are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. Hey, God has built this thing. God's built this thing. God is the builder of his church, not us. And so when the Bible speaks of church here, it highlights and reminds us that the church is most accurately understood as God's people. Remember, hey, this building, I know this is, there's like some, some sensitive history it could burn down. It actually has in the past. If you haven't heard that story, it actually has. It could burn down. Where would we go? Would we cease? I hope not. Because we're not held together by this. We're not held together by this. We're held together by this. That's what we're held together by. And so again, the gathering is not the extent of who the church is called, who is called to be, but it cannot be understood as an insignificant or lesser part of who the church is, the gathering. Just doesn't, doesn't matter where. There's a lot of things that we could do differently, but the fundamental truth that we are the household of God, the dwelling place of God. The third thing that it says in verse 15 is that the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. So this household of God, this dwelling place of the living God, what is, what is it that is contained within us? What sets us apart from the world? It's not our political ideas. It's not anything less than the word of God. The, the pillar and the buttress of the truth. What is contained within us that distinguishes us? It's the truth about God. The truth about who God is. The Bible, the scriptures, And so this gives great weight to our responsibility and describes the job that we have been given, and that is to uphold and promote this truth 
about God in a pure and holy way. Pillars and foundations, what do they do? They hold things up. They serve as bedrocks. They, they hold things up. And so here we see that the church, that we are the ones who hold up this truth. We display this truth to the world, not our opinions, not our ideas, but the word of God. And so how do we do this? Well, it seems that we have a responsibility in receiving God's word and meditating God's word and proclaiming God's word or confessing God's word. Look, what, look how he wraps it up in verse 16. So how do we uphold this truth? By confessing it as a people. Believing, confessing. So how do we do this? In verse 16 says, great indeed we confess is this mystery of godliness. And so Paul lays out what our message is. What's our message? What is this thing that we uphold? Well, I love this. I wish I knew exactly what it was that Paul was doing here. Um, some people would say that it was like a, an early church confession, that like it was, because it's kind of, if you, in your Bible, it's probably indented, that maybe it was something that was, that was traveling around like the, the, the early church, that it was just kind of their united confession of what their belief and what united them was. This is what it says, and I love it. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. So this is what Paul's saying. This is the message that we as the church hold, and this is the truth that we exist to proclaim. First, that Jesus was manifested in the flesh. This is a bold claim. The bold claim is that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. That's that's the foundation of what we believe. Jesus is God. You want to know what God is like? Look at Christ. Look at Jesus. That's who God is. Then it says he was vindicated by the Spirit. Vindicated literally means to clear someone of blame or suspicion. The Holy Spirit vindicated Christ. He says, are you, are you uncertain or unclear on who this Jesus is? Well, the Spirit will vindicate him to the world and to our hearts. He is the Son of God. Romans 1.4, I love Romans 1.4. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God and power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Romans 8.11 says, If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus will Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And then it says that he was seen by angels or some versions say praised among the heavens. And then the, these final three things that he says, this is, a, this is a clear, there is a clear and universal declaration that attests the glory of Jesus. It says that Jesus was proclaimed among the nations the first-hand testimony and the witness of the disciples led to the explosive expanse of the gospel where the gospel was declared and believed upon. Twelve timid men, men who were timid and unsure of their worthiness to follow Jesus at one point, later because of what they saw in the resurrection, went on to change the world because of what they saw, because of what they witnessed. And then it says he was believed on in the world that when God's heart is proclaimed, people are saved. People are saved. People understand and believe the gospel. And so when the spirit of God vindicates these truths in our hearts, our hearts believes and people from every walk of life have trusted in Christ because of what the spirit has proclaimed to our hearts. And then it says that he was taken up in glory. 
that Jesus is alive and is reigning and is seated at the right hand of the Father, that Jesus is the king over all things and that no one compares to him and no one threatens his rule. And so church, we can talk about things that we do. We can talk about things that we should do for all of eternity. But what Paul is making clear here is that who we are is related fundamentally and primarily to the gospel of Jesus. That's it. Hey, we don't have to do, we, we get to, and we should, I think we ought to, we don't have to do parent commissioning. We don't have to welcome covenant members. We don't have to do that. We ought to, I think. That's why we do. We don't have to have pizza for lunch. Yes, we do. Katie would disagree. She hates pizza. So just kidding. We don't have to do a lot of things. There's a lot of things that we don't have to do. What we have to do is to believe and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. Because it's, it's all we are. We are, we are nothing less and we are nothing more than gospel-shaped, gospel-birthed people. So that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna preach and proclaim the word of God. And we're gonna believe the gospel together. And we're gonna fight for that. We're going to, to fight for that as a church. And we must believe that. Hey, the gospel affects and impacts every other area of life. Hey, there is the gospel and then there are gospel implications, right? So there is the gospel, which is the truth about the life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus. And there, then there are implications of the gospel, of the resurrection, that we would love one another, that we would respond to people in certain ways, that we would bear with one another. And so this is our confession that we are a gospel-birthed, gospel-shaped people. And so these truths, they will change the way that we live and they will change the way that we operate as a church. I love this, 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 this is kind of how I'm gonna close this. I'm gonna say this and I'm gonna go into prayer. And so our music team can come. We're gonna come and take communion together. But this is, this is the way that we close. There is nothing like the church Again, we tie the church to the gospel, the true church at least. There's a lot of churches out there that are not tied to the gospel, but the church when it operates right and well, there is nothing like the church in all of the world. No body more significant in all of history, nor will there ever be. Let us then as the church pay close attention to God's instructions about the way that we live and relate to one another in the body of Christ. Father, we just pray that you would help us in these ways, that your spirit would continue, Lord, to vindicate these truths to our heart. Um, we know that though your word is sure and sufficient, that we are people who are still struck by sin. Sin still is, is very much a part of, of who we are. And so, Lord, we, we not only look to just a moment in history or a moment in time to where your spirit vindicated this truth to us as if we are saved and then we just move on to bigger and better things. Lord, we, we trust and we ask and we, we beg of you by your Holy Spirit to continue to vindicate the truth of the gospel in our hearts. Let us not move on. 
Let us not grow tired of the truth of the gospel. Let us move and live and breathe by the truth of this gospel. If we don't understand the gospel, Lord, would, would, you, would you just show us the, the need to more deeply understand as a church, Lord, these implications and, and even just the very fabric of the gospel is that we would make disciples. And so, Lord, would you help us as a church to walk with people who don't understand the gospel to help them better understand the gospel? And Lord, that we would be faithful in doing that. Lord, as we come now, um, we have heard the gospel and now because of what you've given us through, the commu- through communion, through the table, you allow us not only to hear the gospel with our ears, but to see the gospel with our eyes. That Jesus gave his life so that we may have peace with God. And so Lord, let us now approach this table humbly, but also confidently knowing that, Lord, we, we, we approach the table because we've been invited We're here, gather as the church, not because we've invited you, because you've invited us. So the same approach we take this morning to the Lord's Supper. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.